CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is The Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. It's Friday, and you're watching The Hash on Coindesk TV. If you're listening to us, you're listening on the Coindesk Podcast Network. I'm Jen Sinassi. On today's show, we got Sandali Handagama, George Kaloudis, and Adam B. Levine. Guys, we got a jam-packed show today. Sandali, you're kicking us off. What do you got? Three Arrows Capital news. After five weeks in hiding, Three Arrows Capital founders Suju and Kyle Davis have finally spoken out. In an extensive interview with Bloomberg, the duo talked about how and why the big crypto hedge fund imploded earlier this year. A quick quote from the article. At times contrite and at times defensive, Davies and Shu, speaking from an undisclosed location, described a systemic failure of risk management in which easy flowing credit worsened the impact of wrong way bets. So the former Credit Suisse traders pointed to trades involving grayscale Bitcoin trust and Terra's Luna and UST tokens as contributing majorly to the blow up. They also called the collapse regrettable and said they believed in everything they set out to do to the fullest. They also said that they had to go into hiding because of death threats from what they called some crazy people in crypto. And the plan is to end up in Dubai and continue the 3AC liquidation process. There is quite a bit more in here, but first of all, nice to hear from them. I'm sure a lot of people, no doubt, were waiting very impatiently. Kind of sounds like they're trying to throw the blame around here a little bit, but for me, the standout was this statement from Zhu that sort of canceled out everything they said about, you know, it being the fault of so many other things. Zhu said that if we were more on our game, we would have seen that the credit market itself can be a cycle. And that, you know, we may not be able to access additional credit at the time that we need it. If kind of, you know, it hits the fan. This is like what we heard from the Fed Reserve Chair Jerome Powell recently when he said, now we know better how little we understand inflation. I'm so glad that this was like a learning experience for you guys, but so much <laughs> money was involved and so many people you will never know in person suffered. It is literally your job to know how these things work. How do you start a fund if you don't know how credit works? Anyway, I'm going to pass it to Jen before I spontaneously combust. 
Jen, please. Yeah, I mean, I'm just going to echo everything that you said. Like, it is nice to hear from them, but is this what we wanted to hear? Basically, they're saying, you know, this was an experiment and they're really blaming what happened with Terra Luna and Grayscale. Like, they're shifting all of the blame and completely ignoring this 1,000 page report everyone has been going through with a fine tooth comb that point directly to some huge missteps on their part. And so to just not acknowledge some of the things that have come out in that report, some of the narratives that have been being spoken about in the media and from a regulatory front just seems so tone deaf. I would have rather just not heard from them if this was how they were going to handle it. George? Yeah, I have like three things I'm thinking about at once. First, no matter how much money you lost people, you don't deserve death threats. Like, yeah, sure, these guys were dumb. They did some dumb stuff, but they don't deserve these death threats. However, how can you not shoulder some blame? Sandali, like you said, we've known what credit cycles have been like since forever, since credit has existed, which is, has been a while, right? We've known credit existed since 1800. So you should know this, right? The other thing I'm thinking about is, you know, this type of stuff happens, but I want to point out that very few people were willing to say out loud that the Luna mechanism was unsustainable. There are even fewer who were discerning with that critique. And what I mean by that is, if you're just yelling about all the altcoins, your warning has less urgency. However, what I'm really am most shocked about is people getting caught up in this GBTC premium trade that Three Arrows got caught up in. If there's a trade that is so painfully obvious and easy to understand that it can be explained in a singular tweet, it probably isn't a serious trade and it sounds unsustainable. So they got caught up in two unsustainable trades. Not sure I feel bad for 3AC though, right? They'll be fine. They're competent enough to have had more than $1 billion assets under management. And they surely have at least a million dollars of, you know, Monero or Zcash tucked away. So that's more than anyone has. Many people have in the world. So they'll be okay. I don't feel bad for them. They don't deserve death threats, but you should know your credit cycles. Adam? You know, I think the comment that they made about not understanding sort of the way that this stuff works, and I think your comment about us understanding the credit cycles, you know, how they've worked for hundreds of years at this point, I think that there is a counter explanation to this, which is that although that's true, Credit has worked differently for the last dozen, you know, a little bit longer than that number of years. And that's largely because the Federal Reserve first, well, actually the Bank of Japan first, but the Federal Reserve most recently and most significantly really broke the credit cycle. And so you didn't have normal behavior. And I mean, one question that I don't know the answer to, but which I'm very curious about is how old are the founders of Three Arrows Capital? Because it's very possible that they've lived the majority of their trading lives, perhaps the vast majority or entirety of their trading lives in this type of environment. And so really what that means is that although they do definitely bear significant responsibility, the Fed also has some culpability in this too, because it has, through its actions and manipulations of credit markets, has effectively trained people to believe the wrong things about how money should work. They did it for reasons that they thought were really good. They did it in ways that they thought were the least worst ways that they could. But you look at the blowups that we see from firms like Archegos, you know, in the kind of traditional capital world, and you know, from Three Arrows Capital, certainly in the crypto capital world, And these are all symptoms of the problem that is monetary manipulation coming from the Federal Reserve. Yeah, George, back to you. That's church, Adam. I love it. I totally agree. I'm not that old. I'm almost 28 years old, and my entire career has been a bull market. Little dig to Adam there? (laughs) No, that was awesome. I agree. (laughs) I'm just saying, I'm not that old, and my entire career has been a bull market. So I don't know what normal credit markets actually act like. Just because I read books doesn't mean I know anything. Anyway, Sundali, your hand went up, so I want to hear what you have to say. 
No, yeah, they're 35. And they also say in the article that there was a lot of accommodative borrowing. People were really happy when things were going up. So they let, you know, more be borrowed. These are like things that any company, you know, with good sense should approach with caution. And I think that's what we're, we've seen across the board with crypto companies during this crash, that they were not maybe prepared or ready to kind of confront the possibility that the market will go in a way that they did not expect. And they say that exactly in this article that they were like, we were not kind of expecting the market downturn the way it happened. Oops. You know, contingencies need to be in place. And I think going forward, maybe we have a lot of lessons to take away from this. And it's great to hear from them, but I'll pass it on to who's next with the next story. Adam, did you want a last word or should I just go oh, on to my No, story? you're good, George. Let's just take us into the next one. We can talk forever okay. about this one. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we can talk for forever on the next one too. So my yeah. story, let's talk about stable coins. Coindesk's very own David Z. Morris wrote a nice piece the other day about how Circle, the company that issues USD coin or USDC, and who is slated to go public later this year, has finally proven that their cautious approach has paid off. And what do I mean by that? Well, in the stablecoin world, these crypto tokens that are pegged to another currency, usually the dollar, we have some big players. And the biggest player is this one called Tether. And Tether has been around for a while, and Tether has long been the center of conspiracy theories that, in fact, fake Tether volume is what is responsible for any and all of the price movement of Bitcoin, and it was 100% going to collapse the market in 2017, and in 2018, and in 2019, and forever. Until just recently, though, Tether was really the only game in town. And even though USDC cropped up a few years back, it wasn't until recently that the amount of outstanding Tether and USDC looks similar. Right now, Tether's at, and I'm looking at this right now, $65 billion outstanding, and USDC has $55 billion. We could talk about stablecoins all day, but the biggest point in David's article was that USDC is more willing to work with regulators and willing to be transparent, and Tether is more like, don't verify trust. And also, unlike Tether, USDC is backed by US dollars held at US regulated financial institutions and US Treasury securities. I'll quote an article I wrote last July, not to say how awesome I am, but I did talk about this. And then I'm going to toss it up to Adam. If USDC continues to rise in market capitalization to outrank Tether while also becoming a regulatory compliant stablecoin, this may open the door to institutional investors who were once fearful of the regulatory risk of cryptocurrencies, specifically when it comes to trading in crypto off ramps. It certainly did rise. And now we're here talking about USDC potentially unseating Tether as a number one stablecoin. Anyway, Adam, what do you have to say about that? So full disclosure here, I was involved in early 2014 with the first effort to specify Tether. So I do have some connections, but I'm not under any NDAs at this point. And I haven't talked to any of those people in like six years plus at this point. So with that out of the way, stablecoins and cryptocurrency broadly have long been kind of in what I like to call a race to boring. You know, they start off as very novel assets that people don't understand. And as a result of that, there's a lot of fear associated with them. And also as a result of that, you get people who bring forward sort of first versions of products who aren't bringing forward idealized version of products, they're bringing forward first version. So Tether can really be thought of sort of in that context. It was launched at a time when it was unclear whether these types of assets would even be legal. So a player like Coinbase or Circle never would have launched one of these things had Tether not existed. But the time is obviously a lot different today than it was back when Tether launched. And so as Tether has faced more and more competition, yeah, I think it's actually really upped its game significantly, right? Lacking competition, who cares? You know, like if, if you need a stable coin that is liquid and dollar, you know, denominated, then Tether was really the only option. And today that's just not true. You know, I don't mess with algorithmic stable coins. I don't touch anything, you know, that's like in kind of the game theory land of stable coins. 
But at the same time, I think that Circle has done a good job of being conservative here and just a good job of sort of stewarding trust around this type of a product. So they could definitely make a misstep here. But my expectation continues to be that as Circle rises, we'll see Tether go down just because it can't match the level of transparency and the level of compliance that Circle has been willing to do. And I think that's going to wind up being the game. I think that the legislation we're talking about will probably force the issue even more so than we're seeing today. But yeah, it's a fascinating trend and one that I think is really good for the industry as we get more competition into these spaces and that forces standards up for everybody. Sundali, I'll toss to you. Yes, you're absolutely right. And as David points out too, you know, they really made a big regulatory play, you know, to kind of have a dialogue with regulators and be as transparent as possible. They were kind of one of the only stablecoin issues that responded in a you know regulator-friendly way when all these issues about reserves came up. They kind of tried their best to kind of beef them up and at least let the public know they're trying by, you know, getting rid of some of the lesser acceptable types of, you know, backing. The thing here is, as you said, there's legislation coming for stablecoins. The EU just approved its first like big you know, framework for governing stablecoin issuers and stablecoins in general. The US is planning stablecoin rules. The UK just issued legislation that could potentially bring stablecoins under payments. And Circle is at a huge advantage right now because of how they've operated all these years. So I'm really looking forward to kind of Circle going public and watching that story. But on another note, I sort of saw Jeremy Allaire at Davos this year, and he has this very zen kind of, I've seen it all kind of energy about him, (laughs) which is super great. And I was not expecting that from him. And so I think it's showing that patient and good leadership is kind of important here as well. I'm excited for them. Yeah, I wanted to bring the conversation back to Davos. So that was a great transition. I mean, at Davos this year, we heard a lot of talk around stablecoins be about the potential for stablecoins to solve a lot of the issues when it comes to international money transfers and wire transfers. And previously, when we spoke about stablecoins, it was always for traders. There was never any other use case. I think Circle has done a really good job at positioning themselves at the forefront of that conversation, especially at Davos. I mean, this article does a really good job at showing that the founders have had a really specific long-term vision. And if it hasn't been specific, they've been very flexible and kind of moved with the punches. They've been very strategic and they've been able to put themselves in a really good position and achieve that long-term vision. I mean, I think the article does a really good job at outlining their story. And I hope that we actually do see them go public and see what happens next for stablecoins. But we will leave it there. All right. There is a new DAO in town and it's made up of some of Web3's most recognizable names. So just a few names that are a part of this new DAO, Alien Worlds, Animoca Brands, Decentraland, The Sandbox, and more have formed the Open Metaverse Alliance for Web3 in hopes that they can overcome interoperability challenges. Their principles are outlined as transparency, inclusiveness, decentralization, and democratization. Now, they intend to join the Metaverse Standards Forum. So you'll remember that the Metaverse Standards Forum was something that I believe was propped up by Meta and brands like Ikea and Wayfair and Microsoft and Adobe are part of that. So they plan to stand up this DAO and then interact together for this great Metaverse alliance. Adam, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw it up to you for first thoughts. What do you think? 
And I was just looking up XKCD comic on uh, on standards, right? Which is <laughs> everybody wants standards. But the challenge with standards is that everybody also wants whatever they think is the right thing to become the standard. So I think this is actually a good move because what you're seeing is you're seeing groups of powerful, well-funded companies that are building these types of things, starting to band together to create standards as a group rather than creating standards individually and then trying to force that in. This is something we saw back in kind of the earliest days of cryptocurrency, of sort of the tokenized moment, where every project that would come out believed that it would actually become the standard. And as a result, wasn't interoperable really <laughs> with much of anything because they all had their own standards that they wanted to popularize. So I think that's kind of the way that I look at it on this side. It's a good overall effort. But I think that there's a lot that needs to be done before you actually get to a productive result. I would be shocked if we see standards that are widely adopted. I would expect years before seeing any sort of meaningful adoption of those. The space is just too young and we just don't know what the best practices are to make standards around. Jen? Yeah, I just wonder, you know, when we look at all of the names that I just said, we have Web3 companies, Web2, some companies that started as brick and mortar, some that have been along for a lot longer than others. Is this a case of too many cooks in the kitchen at such an early phase when we're looking at the metaverse. I don't know, George, what do you think? Did you guys just see that video of that parrot dancing with beside the dog in the Decentraland? <laughs> Did you guys just see that pop up on our screen? I missed it. If, I missed you know it. what? If that's the metaverse, I'm all in because that was hilarious. <laughs> um, also, you know, the new downtown, Jen, that's kind of clever. I like that internal rhyme. It's pretty Yeah, good. I know. I worked uh, on that for a while. Thank you. Nice. <laughs> that was good. Uh, but, you know, open metaverse, right? Wasn't that the point from the get-go? That's what we're trying to achieve, right? I don't really have much to add beyond, I don't want an avatar named G running around that represents me in the metaverse because there's already enough liability I put Coindesk through simply by just existing on Twitter. I'll avoid that rabbit hole at all costs and I'll toss it up to Sundali for actual content. Yeah, no, I was a bit confused by their example with avatars. So I'm just going to read out the quote. Your avatar can be more than just virtual representation. It also carries your reputation as anyone can see on chain which NFTs you hold, earned, created or bought, the full history of transactions, as well as hopefully the progression slash actions you have contributed throughout time. So I would like to throw it to you, Adam. What do you make of that? So one of the big things that characterizes Web3 compared to Web2 and other prior generations of these types of technologies is that identity itself can become, to a certain extent, decentralized. That's because we have these neutral data layers that we call blockchains. And it's also because we have a meaningful and actually adopted, which is kind of the most important part, private key and public key infrastructure. So what that means is that when you log into something like Decentraland or Sandbox, you typically are logging in not with the username and password, but you're actually logging in with your wallet. And then you are building character and you are building identity, you are assigning names around that. You can also look at OpenSea for something that's real similar to this. OpenSea, you can look at any address and people can rename their addresses and they can add profile pictures to it. And then you can see all of their holdings. So it's much the same thing here, except in the metaverse. That neutral infrastructure provides the possibility and the potential here to create these interoperable systems because it means that Decentraland you know, or Sandbox or whatever doesn't own those identities. The person owns that identity. And Sandbox or Decentraland or whatever is just sort of wrapping additional information around it within their own system. And then also looking at the tokens that the person has, potentially sending them tokens, et cetera, which also uses that neutral layer. So there's a ton of potential here. There's no question about that. The issue, I think, remains that the technology is still just really new. You know, like we're starting to see very, very, very high fidelity metaverses come out that have very poor ability to actually scale. And then on the other side, you've got projects that aren't great in terms of you know, graphical fidelity, 
but they scale really well. That reminds me a lot of blockchain right now, right? You kind of have to pick what's important to you and then you build from there. And I don't think in the end, when this technology is really popularized and we start to see it really make a big difference in our world, that that will be true. I think you'll be able to have your cake and eat it too. But there's still so much to go before that, that again, it's a step in the right direction. And it's good to see these efforts, you know, being so large so early on. But I think there's still a lot of work to do before we get anywhere meaningful. Back to you. Thank you for yeah, that. Adam. And I'm just going to go super quick. I was going to say, Adam, I completely agree with you. And it will be interesting to see how these open metaverses play with the closed metaverses. There are going to be closed metaverses. I think that's no secret. A lot of the metaverses that are run by brands that people interact with are going to be closed. And it's mirroring what we're seeing now with blockchain and crypto, right? And so it'll be interesting to see how the open metaverses and the closed metaverses play together. That's my ramble on like, ah, oh, what's going to happen? Jen, and look here at the we go. <laughs> George, I was wondering what you're laughing at. And this is amazing. It wasn't you. It was definitely a light. Sure. <laughs> I want to... I want to be a part of. <laughs> this might make me like the metaverse, so. Sadly, I'll give you the exactly. last word. No, this is great. I love that little clip. I wish that was me in there. But yeah, I just <laughs> wanted to point out also that, you know, the technologies at a very young stage, as Adam pointed out, but so are DAOs. I'm still not convinced DAO governance is where it could be or needs to be. We've had some questionable governance scenarios. It's vulnerable to manipulation. One entity can have more power depending on their stake. So. It will be interesting to see how this evolves. I'm hoping at this level with these kinds of organizations involved, where it stands to represent the metaverse kind of at large, that we can see DAO working as we all hoped it could, I think, maybe. That's an optimistic note. So we're going to move on to our next story in just a second, but a real quick note about DAOs. You know, like DAOs, in my opinion, right now are like someone invented the concept of a corporation. And then people are like, ah, do corporations for everything, right? Like a corporation or a DAO, they're just structures, right? They're structures that allow you to coordinate stuff. But ultimately, it's the what you're coordinating, not the mechanism by which you're coordinating it that determines the success of the thing, that determines how it works, et cetera. So again, like they're exciting right now and buzzwordy, and they will become important with time. But again, as you said, the technology is so young, it's interesting to see them paired together in this way and perhaps not a good thing. But for our last story of today, we're taking a look at a big crypto lender who's having a better time than most we've recently been discussing. Nexo, based in Bulgaria, halted interest payments on new deposits back in February, but appears to have avoided much of the problematic lending that doomed players like Celsius and Voyager Digital. They have, in fact, been publicly on the prowl for competitors who they could roll into their operation at hopefully bargain basement prices. But data posted to the website of an accounting firm contracted by the company to provide regular attestations on customer balances shows that the lender may have suffered from significant withdrawals, similar to those which led to trouble at its rivals. The data shows that deposits declined to $3.9 billion, down a whopping $3 billion from the $6.9 billion they reported on May 12th. In a statement to Coindesk, a Nexo spokesperson said, quote, at any moment, Nexo's assets under management exceed its obligations, meaning we are stable and able to provide clients with their funds at any time, end quote which is basically just a slightly fancier way of saying that they are in fact solvent, unlike many of their competitors. George, I'm going to throw this to you first. I know you've been watching kind of these lending companies for a while now. How does this news about Nexo kind of fit into the broader sort of environment in which they're operating and which we've all been observing? Yeah, first off, it is great to hear that they at least say that they're solvent. That's great. Can they survive an actual bank run? Who knows? The thing that I'm the most focused on with all these, you know, I'm not going to name any particular lender or yield generating platform, but we are running into a yield issue. These users generate yield with their assets. 
but I would generally say that the retail focused aspect of crypto and yield generation is actually an incredibly interesting thing to watch unfold in real time as everyday people learn where the yield comes from. For example, when I grew up, I heard about interest on bank accounts and in CDs and all that jazz, but it wasn't until I was like 20 years old in my first job in finance where I learned that banks do that by lending your money out. Not because I was some dumb, dumb idiot, which I kind of am, but not because I was a dumb, dumb idiot, but because most people just don't know how that works. And financial institutions are becoming more transparent and the how this works is coming more front and center. And I'm actually here for it, right? I'm not super excited about these lending platforms that are saying, oh, I'll give you 10% interest on your USDC. Don't ask why, because I'm excited about people asking, how? How are you giving me more money on the money I gave you? Are you rehypothecating it or are you not? I think it's really interesting to see happen in real time. Sundali, anything to add? Yeah, no, that was great. I didn't learn that until quite late too, so I'm totally with you. But yeah, it's not unusual that the firm was hit by, you know, the broader market anxiety, says it's stable and solvent. It sounds super confident right now. I think a big part of that was obviously because, as the article says, it managed to kind of sidestep some of the big crises and collapses recently. And it also kind of says, you know, if you'd noticed, we had no exposure to 3AC. But like, here's the thing about that. How do we know for sure that that was some kind of smart move it made? Like, it can say anything in hindsight, like, oh, we knew 3AC was a bad idea, but there's no way of knowing if it was kind of by accident or not so much by plan. We've heard crypto companies sound extremely confident before, but, you know, financials of private companies like this are not public. So I believe it's stable when they say so. And, you know, it looks that way. But I think this kind of vigilance and reporting is also very necessary going forward, especially for companies showing like big ambitions and looking to take over others and if we've learned anything from this year's event. So I just wanted to point out that that was great reporting by Coindesk there. Jen. Suddenly you said what I was going to say, so I'm going to let Adam have the last word. <laughs> well, oh, no. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> I was just going to say that, you know, when you're looking at these companies, there's a kind of spectrum in terms of their risk tolerance, right? George mentioned a term, rehypothecation. That basically means lending out another person's asset or lending out an asset that's already been lent out for something else, right? So that's what we saw in, again, the Archego situation. And then it's also what we've seen, you know, in some of the other situations around here. And then others, you know, like Voyager Digital, you know, we talked about how Three Arrows Capital at the top of the show had been able to get really great rates and, you know, amazing deals from lenders. And that actually encouraged them to lend more. And you look at the Voyager deal, and as far as I know, that's the largest, best deal that they were able to get, where they took basically $650 million in loans with zero collateral against it, which is just a wild decision to make as a company. So Nexo doesn't have to be amazing at what they're doing. They just have to not take really ridiculous, crazy risks, right? And so there's a saying, I'd rather be lucky than good. I think that that's true in crypto too. I think that it's much better to be lucky than good. But if you can just not be bad, if you can just not do dumb <laughs> things, then that's probably enough to get you pretty far of the way. And I think that we're seeing that with Nexo compared to Celsius and to the other kind of worse off players out there. But I think that's all the time we have for today, guys. This is always fun. That's been a common yeah. theme on the show this week. Don't be bad and don't be a bad person and do good things. I think those are some great reminders as we head into our weekend. Thank you everybody for watching The Hash on Coindesk TV and for listening to us 
on the Coindesk Podcast Network. Lots of other great podcasts there. If you love Coindesk.com, stick around for all about Bitcoin. I'm Jen Sanasi. That's Sandali Handagama right above me. Beside her is Adam P. Levine. And then we got George Kalutis down in the bottom corner. We are The Hash. Have a great weekend and we'll see you on Monday. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening.